0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer and columnist for the Conservative Institute, where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. You may have seen me from also from some of my recent pieces as a contributor at The Dispatch. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles that I've seen that week. This week, I wrote about the coming populist backlash against China and also how COVID-19 puts the European Union at the brink again of extinction, with all the countries clamoring to get their piece of the action. Those are my columns at the Conservative Institute, and then also I had a newsletter out this week talking about how they, I took a break from just writing about the virus in the newsletter this week and talked about how governments get designed from a historical perspective, going through a little bit of Montesquieu, Greek history with Polybius and some others. So if any of that interests you now or after the show, you can sign it up and get it all in your email inbox at thebeltwayoutsiders.com. You would have also gotten the the piece I wrote for the dispatch there in that piece, talking about the World Health Organization and how the United States can work on getting, getting more out of the World Health Organization, I guess would be the, the best way to put it, because the World Health Organization has definitely sided with China more and more these days. And I write out in that piece some of the things that the United States can do. So if any of that that listed you now or after the show, just sign up and you'll get that all in your email. And then finally, if you like what you hear here or enjoy my written work, make sure to subscribe and review this podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star reviews always help listeners and readers like you find me in the iTunes algorithm. And I always look forward to hearing from you guys. So this week's show is going to be a continuing theme. You might have guessed we're covering the continuing impacts of the coronavirus. We're entering the second week now for the hardest time for this virus in the United States. This is what Dr. Fauci, Donald Trump, and others said. This is the period of time they said this would be the worst period of time for the United States. It looks like, if you're glancing at some of the models and trend lines, like we're finally turning a corner here, it looks like the curve is finally flattening, but we're still going through the period of time where the most deaths are occurring across the nation. So that's where we are this week. Last week we were recording You know, entering this week and looking at some of the predictions and just some of the numbers and trend lines from there. Right now, we're in the middle of it. By the end of the week, we'll have a very good idea of where things are headed for the rest of the month, just primarily because you're going to see a lot of these governors have to decide whether or not they're going to continue their mandatory stay-at-home orders and more. So big decision week this week for governors and mayors across the country, and we'll see probably this week the first hints of a plan from the President and the White House on how the economy could get reopened. Now, the thing to remember about that is the models that they're using, the IHME models from the University of Washington, I believe that's the one it's doing that, those models are predicated on the notion of mandatory stay-at-home orders through the end of May. And they show all of this tailing off once you get to June. Now, I don't think that's going to happen at all. I do not believe you're going to see the full country stay at a mandatory stay-at-home thing until then, but we'll get more into that when we get into the coronavirus. That's what we're covering for this. We'll get to that in some of the model talk. And then, you know, finally we'll follow that up with the discussion of the economic impacts, which continue to mount up to the main Hits that we're taking on the economic front are happening this week as well. So we're in the middle of that, and we have numbers to talk about there. Before that, though, I wanted to do a quick hit section on my thoughts of Bernie Sanders dropping out of the race. At least somewhat. He says he's still going to be taking on delegates as we move down the various elections, whether or not they happen or not, is another story altogether, but he says he's going to continue to take delegates even though he's stepping down and ceding this race to Joe Biden. So basically, this looks like the end of the road for Bernie Sanders. For a long time now, Bernie Sanders has been just a face of socialism in America. He first came to prominence in 2016 as the main Anti Clinton vote in the Democratic Party. And that is really his main contribution here. Bernie Sanders truly misread his moment in 2016 and trying to project that into 2020. He believed that he had a true moment where people were turning towards his brand of socialism in 2016, and that's not what happened at all. Hillary Clinton was unpopular, not just with Republicans. She was highly unpopular with Democrats, who did not want to vote for her in 2016. And she, her unpopularity, combined with the way she cleared the field, she and the Democratic Party, they cleared the field from any opposition for her, she had a token opponent opponent that I don't even remember now. He was out of Maryland. But Bernie Sanders was the main active threat against her, and so he provided the chance for people to 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 just cast a protest vote. If you didn't like Clinton, you could vote for Bernie Sanders because you knew he wasn't likely going to win, but if you didn't want to vote for her, you could vote for him in the primaries and then change your mind at the general election. The key point here is that Bernie misread this because no one liked Hillary Clinton. That did not in turn mean that they liked him or socialism. And so I believe him getting just absolutely blasted here in the primaries also seriously undercuts the idea that we're in the thralls of a socialist moment right now, this narrative. And I know I've written along these lines, and others have too, trying to figure out whether or not we are in truly a socialist moment in the Democratic Party. And Noah Rothman over Commentary and others have pointed out and said that this Bernie Sanders' existence and what he's done has shifted the party further to the left. Now, you can point to obvious instances where this is true, but I disagree with this. And my second piece at the Dispatch that I wrote a while back Go through why I think this, and primarily it's because the Bernie Sanders-style progressives or socialists are having a hard time winning in the general election. They can win these races, like where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is in New York, because any Democrat could win that district. It's not about winning the general election there; it's about winning the primaries, and they can do that. They just can't win a general election. Or even a broader election where you have a more diverse base. And so the extent to which they are shifting the party and shifting the Overton window, as you hear people talk about, that only matters if you win. If you lose these races, as some of them have done, you could have the exact opposite effect so for instance if you look over in the united kingdom now jeremy corbyn has just got his his party's entire they got obliterated completely from top to bottom in this past election and that has meant that the rest of the labor party is now looking at him and looking at his brand of socialism as an anathema to the rest of the country they're not going to run on that platform because it's not going to win it's proven it's not going to win, even when you had a weak leader in Theresa May running in the election previous to that. So I tend to look at this as, and from a different angle from most who are saying that Bernie Sanders has shifted things. I don't see that quite as clearly. I think there's just as much evidence that he's had the exact opposite effect, at least electorally, and made some Democrats absolutely unelectable in a general election. Now, Bernie Sanders supporters, they're going to try to keep his memory alive by claiming that this election was, this election and 2016 both, were both stolen from them by the Democratic National Committee. And they're going to have a point there, not that it was stolen, but that the party was dead set against allowing him to win, and that hurt his chances because no one thought he was a viable candidate. Now, that they have a fair point, but it's also going to be unprovable in the end, because, especially in 2020, Bernie Sanders had four years, four years from 2016 to 2020, to build a coalition among black voters in the Democratic Party. Black voter voters dictate what happens in the primaries more than any other voting constituency, both due to where they live and how the primaries are built. You can pretty much toss out now The first three states, yes, places like Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada matter in allocating delegates, but South Carolina determined the course of action for the Democratic Party. because Once it was clear that black voters were not going to get behind Bernie Sanders, everything else shifted. Every other group in the Democratic Party moved behind the choice of black voters and went with Joe Biden in this case. Bernie Sanders had four years to build bridges, and he didn't do a thing. In fact, there's no evidence he even expanded upon the small base that he had in 2016. You could probably make a case that his base shrunk in the intervening years, and that is on him. And so they can talk about how the election was taken from them in some ways, and you can point to distinct areas where the party did did set up against Bernie Sanders. But... He also didn't expand his coalition. Had he made it hard on the Democratic Party by making serious inroads with black voters, you might be seeing a different result, or at least their argument that this that was stolen from him would have more weight. So his weaknesses were clear early on, and he did nothing to fix them. The last point I want to make here is that the fight over his legacy could end up splitting the socialist wing of the Democratic Party, because you're going to have, on one hand, the more traditionalists who, folk, who are like Bernie Sanders, and that they see socialism, communism, and everything focused on a class status, which means your status as a working class or... Anything like that it's very typical Marxism where the workers uh, the workers of the world will eventually unite seeing their united class interest and will overthrow the rich and the wealthy. Well they, they are now at odds with what I've termed the woke Marxists and I'll link to this dispatch piece because it goes through a lot of this. But these are the people like AOC, Stacey Abrams, and others who base Marxism and class consciousness on race and political identity and not traditional class consciousness that you see in that. And Bernie Sanders just sort of brought these two groups together. They never really had anything in common apart from that. And I think you're going to see them fight over the legacy of Bernie Sanders going forward, just primarily because it's not just this idea of class versus race consciousness. It's also about the future of socialism, because you have these new generation, which rejects some of the stuff of the old, and you have this older generation, which is closer to what Bernie Sanders believes. So I think you're going to see a generational fight on the future of socialism going forward. You could say that you would expect the younger generation to win this, and I would say that's a fair point to make, but we've seen Stranger Things happen in the past, so I would not guarantee that point to them. Stranger Things just happen. And so it's an interesting thing that's going to see here as he fades into the background. What will his legacy be, and how will people paint him moving forward in pushing politics and the Democratic Party forward, forward? I think... If Biden loses in 2020, you're going to see this inviting explode out. Because Biden and Hillary are the two people who could theoretically unite all these different bands. You have Obama, but he's out of office now. And so he doesn't have quite the controlling impact that he once did. These groups, if they don't have somebody to sit on them like they have with Biden or Hillary are going to start airing their grievances out in the open. Bernie Sanders, you know, his campaign staff are already doing that. They're blasting Biden and others. So there's already a lot of sniping going on from Bernie Sanders' camp. We saw this also from Elizabeth Warren's campaign, who does not seem to realize how or why they lost. It's sort of interesting to see how they they don't have any clue why the election went the way that it did. Bernie Sanders campaign staffers believe it was stolen from him. and So they are far more vindictive than even the Warren supporters are. So I think if you see Biden lose, this anger about being stopped will come out first from the Sanders supporters and also from the Warren supporters who are going to believe that had they been allowed to win this primary, they would have won in 2020. So there's a lot at stake here for the various different factions of the Democratic Party in this election because if Biden wins, then it's proof positive that they have nothing to offer to the party. If he loses, they're going to argue that they could have won and that's going to be an interesting argument moving forward. Alright, so when we come back from a break, we'll get back into the coronavirus and all the impacts that it's having. And we're back talking about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. We're going to start out, as we've been doing, talking through the top line numbers. As I said at the top, we're in the middle of the hardest two weeks for this virus right now. That's just this initial first wave. We don't really have a way to predict anything about a second or a third wave right now. All we know is where we are in this first initial thing, and this is the peak period of time, according to all models, and the data seems to be bearing that point out so right now the iha ihme models projected that the united states hit peak on april 11th which would have been saturday and that would be an average of all the country so that would be mean we hit a peak for what the average of the entire country needed during that period of time and some of this is where you know you're beginning to see new york beginning to fade a little bit here and they aren't quite the driving factor that they once were. For instance, you're going with Tennessee, the peak for Tennessee is going to be on the 19th, according to some of the models. Other states are later. Other states have already hit theirs and moved forward. So everyone is in different places with this virus right now. And you have to remember, all of this is an estimate. So, Really and truly, the next, these two weeks are peak for, and that'll get you through the bulk of all the hotspots across the country. There will still be flashpoints after these two weeks in other places, but the average place of the country will be past peak moment. So if you look at that and then you look at where the data is overall, the big numbers this week from the COVID tracking project show that we've tested 2.8 million people which is an astonishing figure from where we are and I'm going to compare this among these numbers are for April 12th and I'm going to compare that to a month earlier in March 12th so we have 2.8 million tests right now across the entire country 551,000 are positive and we have 22,000 deaths so far if you compare that to March 12th on March 12th we only had 9,000 562 tests. At that point in time, we were only doing two to three thousand tests a day across the entire country. Right now, Tennessee by itself does two to three thousand tests a day. We only had one thousand five hundred and twenty-one positive tests and fifty-one tests, deaths. Now remember, this is national. Some states have well more than this now, not counting someplace like New York, but you know, you know, in Tennessee we have More tests run than this right now. Tennessee has managed to hit over 70,000 people, which means we've tested more than 1% of the entire state population, which is an astonishing figure. And Tennessee's not alone, many other states have accomplished this very same feat. And so you're looking and comparing, you know, 9,500 tests to 2.8 million, that is an astonishing surge. During that period of time, you know, we, everyone kept beating on the fact that we needed to do more tests. We needed to do more tests. We were constantly behind. And we are finally at the point where that is a reality. And here's the deal. On just raw numbers, raw totals, the United States has tested more people than any other country. In fact, we're far and away the best at this now. South Korea you know, the gold standard that everybody's looking at, they haven't even tested a million people yet. They will probably hit that this week, but by the time they hit a million, we will probably be at three, over three million at that point. So we're still behind if you're looking at different metrics, like on a per capita basis and other things, but just for the sheer volume of testing that we're doing in this country, we have done more than anyone else. That includes any European country, any Asian country, China, all of them. We've done More. And so that explains partially why we're finding more positive tests because we are testing a lot more people just on a raw number basis. So that is a good thing. It should continue and it's going to tell us the exact scope of where this virus is headed. And it's just, it's huge ground makeup or miraculous almost just how far we've come. And it explains why we've seen the model shift. You may see some people on either social media or TV or in the news arguing about whether or not these models are even accurate because they've shifted so dramatically. You may remember in mid-March, people were talking about how millions of people could die, tens of millions, perhaps even 100 million people could get the virus or more, and those were just staggering estimates that we were being given and now that we have hard data and we've we've integrated actual mitigation efforts like social distancing and shutting things down these models are now only showing that we're going to around 60,000 people are going to die and you're not going to see the millions of people get it at least in this wave that we would have expected otherwise So that's why you've seen the models shift. It's not because they're right and it's not because they're wrong. It's simply because they're running on hard data now. When you have, well, you're comparing 2.8 million data points versus barely 10,000. But that is a massive difference that's going to affect how your models are going to run. Because primarily we, we know what's happening in a lot of these states now. Some of them have not tested as much as others. But in those that have tested a lot, we have a very good idea of how the virus is going and how each state is handling it. So with this hard data and with our mitigation efforts, we are seeing better outcomes. And if we have a second or third wave, like we saw with the Spanish flu, our toolbox for that period of time will be far different and much more complete. Because this time we won't have to ramp up on testing, we will know how to test for it, we will know how to social distance, all the stuff we had to ramp up this period of time we will not have to do in a second or third wave and so our response should be better and also what could change this is that we should be able to get treatments online in order to produce the impact of the symptoms that people are experiencing which should also reduce our death rates overall. Basically, this should be our worst period of time because we know what to expect, we're prepared for it this time, and we should be able to hit this thing much harder on a second or third wave. I'll get to more on some of the major questions that we have coming out of this here in a second, but that is a much better scenario than where we were a month ago when we didn't really know what we were facing. I wrote a column on March either twelfth or thirteenth that said we were flying blind. And the reason for that was because the CDC and the FDA messed up from January through February and even through the first of March in getting testing online for the United States. They messed up, there was a turf war battle, and it just it was just a mess. And we've finally been able to figure out how to turn that around. And with more and better tests, like five-minute tests finally hitting the system, we're only going to get better. So that brings us to the models, which, you know, right now, like I said, overall, U.S. peak should be this week at some point. If it's not the 11th, it'll be at least some point this week, and that is both for cases and deaths. Right now, they're predicting 61.5 thousand people dying from this, which is a lot, and we don't want to see that number, but That is beating the original estimates, which showed 1 to 2 million deaths, and it's also beating the second-tier estimates, which were just a couple weeks ago, which we were talking about 100,000 to 240,000 people dying. So we've beat two estimations of where we were going to be with this, and all trend lines are in the right direction. We're not seeing the health system overall swapped. We seem to have enough ventilators moving forward, so it's just a matter of trying to get the best outcomes as possible as we move towards this. And and the big question is, can we actually beat 60,000? Right now we're at 22. If we can bring that down even more through more mitigation efforts, we might be able to beat even those estimations. And if so, that would be a major victory, it's a victory either way right now, especially if New York ends up being our worst hot spot of all. You have uh, bad moments in a lot of these other cities, but if New York ends up being the worst that we have, that is going to be a win in a, in a country the size of the United States with as many major cities that we have. It's especially a victory for places like New, for California Washington and elsewhere, which we thought were going to be hot spots, but were able to turn their situation around very quickly. So that really just makes New York stand out even more when you compare the efforts in a lot of these other states, even if they started out behind, what they've been able to do in comparison to New York. So, and you know, everything there is all at the feet of Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. The media there is fawning over both of them, but in reality, as they continue to feud openly over things like who gets the hold of press conference, it's their fault that New York has ended up in this bad shape. They refuse to take action, at multiple times, and so this is directly—I mean, really—it's directly at the feet of Bill De Blasio. And after that, you look at Cuomo. They've picked up their their act considerably since then, but this is still on them for how bad it's gone on their watch, especially when you compare it to the rest of the country. So that brings us to the big questions that are left outstanding. The thing about models is that they they measure uncertainty, how uncertain we are about certain things. That's why you see a range of possibilities. That's why we saw a range of 100,000 to 240,000. Right now, the models think somewhere around 60,000 people could die. All of this is affected by uncertainty. And right now, the more we test, the more certain we are about how this peak it will last, how it's built, where it's headed. The more we test, the more we know. And so we're reducing uncertainty on that front. But that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods on uncertainty overall. And we have four big questions left to answer here. The first one is probably the most important here, and that is, can people get reinfected? There have been stories and studies looking at this on both sides. I have not seen a clear answer yet. If it turns out to be true that people can get reinfected, then we have a truly long haul ahead of us, because that means either... Two things: one, the virus is not responding; it's not responding to the human immune system, or or it's managed to adapt, or it means that human immunity, for whatever reason, is not sticking. Usually, with some of these big-time diseases, once the human body learns how to be immune to this, it won't get sick from it again. Except, you know, you may need a booster shot or something like that, and that's why we rely on things like vaccines. If that doesn't work, then there is a much longer haul ahead. If, if it's not possible to get reinfected, then all we have to do is work our way towards a vaccine and we'll be in much better shape once that comes out. And I, I really do, that's probably a 12 to 18 month process. Look for the president. If it works, he will probably fast track that thing and get it out to the public quickly. And so then it's just a matter of getting to that point. And within two years, you're looking at the complete wipeout of this virus overall. And then we just move on to the next thing. So that's the first major question. Do people get reinfected from it? The second one is, is this virus impacted by heat or humidity? Because as the northern hemisphere moves into the summer months, there's going to be more heat, there's going to be more humidity, which could cause the virus to not spread as quickly. We, there are, again, there are studies on both sides of this. I've seen people point to things saying, going both ways on this. We don't know. I haven't seen a firm answer yet. Hopefully, the answer is yes, which means we could get a reprieve here during the summer months, which means it will not spread as quickly in the United States, which would give us a chance to take our lessons from the spring, from the winter in the spring, take them into the summer, prepare, and then beat a fall outbreak. So it is to our benefit that this thing be affected by heat and humidity. The third thing is test and trace. And that means can you trace the people who test positive? If you can do that, then you can get all the people who are sick and the people who they've encountered, keep them quarantined and you can allow a healthy population to move about freely and do what they need to do. Just you know, you can keep the economy open because if you know who's sick and you know who they've been in contact with, all you have to do is quarantine those people and keep them away from the healthy. So can we do this? Can the United States do this? South Korea was able to do it, and they kept their economy open for the entire time. They, of course, had other mitigation efforts that they had going, but the big question for us is can we do the same thing? You may have seen a story this past week about how Apple and Google are working to accomplish this. They're building an app that will go on smartphones that using some sort of Bluetooth technology, I don't know exactly how that interacts with the app, but it will allow them to figure out whether or not you've been in close proximity to a person who tested positive. So that would be a private sector solution instead of using the government to accomplishment, which is better. Um, there are obviously some civil libertarian concerns here, where you, some civil liberties concerned here about data and privacy and all that, but... If it's the private sector doing this, that is far easier for them to do than relying on the federal government to have to figure out a way to get around all of the Fourth Amendment concerns there. So I think you're going to watch the government allow the private sector in the United States to try to step in and do this just because it would be easier for these companies to do it than it would be for the federal government. And finally, do we have a way to treat this to combat the symptoms? And the big thing of this is do we have a pharmacological, just any kind of medicine that's going to combat the virus? This has been a big point of contention in the daily press hearings with the president. He has pointed to various medicines that he believes will work and how we're testing all those out. And we are testing a lot of solutions to this. I've seen a lot of studies going by, of various drugs being tested to see if they will have any effect on the virus. And if we can get you know, two or three of those at least that are having a direct impact on how the virus works, then we will have almost a complete toolkit here on how to beat this long term. And that will allow us to open up sooner and treat people and to keep this thing from spreading quite as bad and also to prevent it from having quite the impact health-wise that it's having now. Because even if it spreads, if you can prevent the number of people dying that we're currently seeing, then this just becomes another sickness that we can work around with an open economy. So those are the four major questions. There's a lot of uncertainty that still remains. But, you know, with all this testing that we're doing, that means we're getting a handle on the problem. The more testing we do, the more we'll find. And even the more chance we have of finding some of these asymptomatic people who are super spreaders, because if you don't know that you have it, you're obviously going to be spreading it more just, you know, everywhere. So, the more we test, the more we can get our hands around who all these people are, what they're doing, and how to keep them quarantined. So, those are the top line numbers. I'm going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about the economic impacts. All right, and we're back talking about the economy and COVID-19. This was another rough week on the economic front. Just has been a And a rough week on the public health front. 6.8 million people filed for unemployment benefits this week. When you combine that number, which is staggering and just absolutely unfathomable. When you combine that with the last three weeks combined, you get nearly 17 million Americans all applying for unemployment benefits in that span, which is the most we've ever seen ever under any circumstances. And just for reference here, at the height of the Great Recession between 2007 and 2008, 15.4 million people were unemployed, and we've cleared that hurdle in the span of three weeks. So we've done the height of unemployment during the Great Recession in three weeks. And during that time, that happened over a slow process where you had people losing their jobs jobs over the span of about 12 to 18 months. Not so this time that happened in 3 weeks. And so and, and even then people didn't know the full extent of what was happening, so everything sort of happened on a slow basis. This has been swift. You're talking about nearly a third of the economy that has been shut down and impacted people everywhere. And so that is just a major strain on the overall system and it, it's just it it's just unfathomable how large that number. I've tried to wrap my brain around it in different ways, but it is truly historic in all the wrong ways. And when you combine that with the supply chain which is still being stressed, that is the next major drag because you're having all these various industries still trying to get supplies Two customers, getting products to customers is still a hard thing to do. Hopefully that, you know, I, I feel like I keep saying this, that you, you hope the supply chain works itself out, but I do hopefully this think this thing will start to work its way through over the next two weeks just because by that point it will have been a full month where you had you know, countries get on the, I mean, all these companies get on the backside of this main pressure here because really and truly what's hurting them is are these mandatory stay-at-homes because people are having to stash stuff more often, so that is you know putting extra strain if that if people don't have to do that as much, you may see this pressure that the supply chain is feeling the demand lessen a little bit, so we'll still need to infuse money into both the supply chain side of this and on the healthcare side because in the healthcare sector you've you've got them losing money. From all these outpatient procedures and other things that have been canceled. And so they're going to need not so much so much bailout, but just support from the government to allow them to continue to fighting COVID-19 while the rest of the healthcare sector is sort of sitting idle in this time, not making money that could help fund some of these things that are happening right now. So those are the two big pressures now. It's going to be the supply chain and also the unemployment aspect of this those two areas are going to need relief sooner rather than later. And this next week is going to be hard too because you're you're just going to see more people file for unemployment benefits. So we could see this go well north of 20 million. That would not surprise me in the slightest if that happened this week. Um and it, it is astonishing to say that because when Steve Mnuchin went and testified before Congress and this was about a month ago, maybe not quite that far back, He told them then that if this went full pandemic, that we could be facing a situation where unemployment in the United States, which was at historic lows, could leap up almost overnight and hit 20%, which is staggering because that's one in five people who are then unemployed. And then if, when you fast forward a little bit, the Federal Reserve and testimony before Congress, they are projecting in their internal models that we could see something as high as 33, 35% unemployment. That is their worst case scenario that they are currently projecting, which would mean, I believe the number was 47 million, so close to 50. So 47 million people would be unemployed, which is just a staggering figure from where we just were. And if we get to that point, then you do start to get talking about whether or not we have entered a really deep recession we're still not in depression territory at that point, just because there's not an actual economic shock here. It's a black swan event where it's a shutdown. So you would expect some kind of immediate turnaround if things open back up. Powering the economy back up is still going to be a long process. So they, either way, you're still looking at a, a long process for bringing things back online. So this next week is going to be hard on that front too. Congress is going to have to do more. I wrote a column to this effect two weeks ago, and it's still true now. Congress is going to have to step in. The checks that everyone is expecting should start going out this next week. I believe some people are being told that April 15th is when to expect to get them. Hopefully that's the case. Hopefully the bulk of people get them this next week, because that would alleviate a lot of the pressure that people are feeling. If you see another major spike in the unemployment benefits thing, I think Congress is going to have to act almost immediately and either send out another round of checks for another month, or ideally I would just have them send it out in another two weeks, just do it again. But what they would probably do is just send out another $1,200 check to each individual for the following month. Or they will probably do what Senator Josh Hawley has proposed, which is until we get back on our feet, the United States government would guarantee up to 80% of your salary from your employer and just basically take over payroll for all these countries companies until we get things back on their feet those are the two main propositions there at this stage i think both is are fine you have to these this is pandemic economics so you have to throw you have to try something new ideally the both of these things would have been put in place several weeks ago like i said ideally that is not going to happen um the 80% of your salary thing would have been better up front. I don't know if it would have as much of an impact now. It does be nice for most people, but I don't know if it would just, it would have the same impact that people need it to have right now. So those are both the proposal, both of the proposals, they should have been done. Look this next week for the debate around that to get hot because people are going to start debating about whether what we should do moving forward. And we know right now that the economic numbers at the end of the month are going to be just historically bad. So when you, I said at the beginning of the month, looking at the March unemployment rate, which showed 700,000 people were unemployed. I said then that that report would get revised up because things were just moving too fast at that point in March to capture everything that was happening. And I think you're going to see the full impact of that be felt once we get to the end of this month and see the April jobs report, which is going to show even worse numbers because the full impact, especially for all these mandatory stay-at-home orders, the full impact of those are going to be felt this week. So that is where we are headed on an economic front. You're going to see numbers that are just beyond anything we've ever seen before. You're talking about only you know times where it's either the Great Recession, the double dip, or uh, recession during the 1980s, and even the Great Depression. That's, that's Those are really your markers here because those are the worst moments we've ever seen, and these numbers are going to line up for with what we saw during those times. So this is a very hard crunch for everyone right now, but it's particularly hard for those who are actually unemployed trying to get unemployment benefits because I know... Just about every state has had trouble keeping their website up because they're not designed to handle millions of people hitting their websites, getting benefits all at the same time. So this is historic. There's just no other way to put it. You're living through a historic moment right now that people are going to study for decades. And whatever the government does decide to do in response to this economic shock will get studied for decades. So this is what it's like to live through a moment, which everybody knows is history. This is what it feels like. Uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out on the backside of this. I believe you could see a, you know, a big recovery on the backside. But for now, while we're weathering the worst of this storm, we're going to see the worst of this and more people are going to go on unemployment in the meantime. That's kind of a you know dark place to end the show, but that's sort of all I've got on this front. There We do have the chance of a recovery on the side of this. The question is whether or not it'll be V-shaped and be a sharp recovery, or it will be a U-shaped and take more time to develop. So that's what's to watch moving forward as we get through this second week. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes, or feel free to hit me up on Twitter at dvonci. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that, and you'll get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I'll see you guys in the next episode.